0: From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine.
1: So can you be interpreted many different ways for the people who consume it, or the people who are good preachers of, of the gospel of delicious
0: food. Hey there, I'm Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. Now, you just heard from today's guest, Todd Richards. As a self-taught chef, Todd has worked his way to the top of numerous award-winning restaurants. And today, Todd is the chef and owner of Richard's Southern Fried in Atlanta's Crog Street Market. He's also the culinary director of two of the most lauded airport restaurants in the country, both in Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson, the award-winning One Flew South, and the spot owned by rapper Ludacris Chicken and Beer. Now, we're here today to talk about Todd's first book, Soul, A Chef's Culinary Evolution in 150 Recipes, which explores his culinary roots and shares his inventive takes on classics— Think of recipes like blueberry sweet tea brined chicken thighs, or one of my favorites, which we'll discuss later on, the collard green ramen. Now, Todd calls this cookbook his homage to the cuisine of his family, as well as a testament to what he's discovered on his journey as a chef. Plus, this book is just full of stunning photos and Todd's menus with fun musical pairings. In today's show, we're talking with Todd about his path to the culinary arts. It's a story that starts in a Kroger deli, about what he learned about his family and the concept of family while putting together his first cookbook, and what chefs and cookbook authors have been influential to him over the course of his career. Then we're, of course, putting Todd's creative culinary mind to the test with our little secret ingredient game. Plus, Celia Sack from Omnivore Books joins us. And of course, we've got a recipe from Todd Richards' soul. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Todd Richards joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Todd. How are you? I'm doing well. And yourself? Good. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. I'm glad to be here. We're really glad to have you. I'm so happy that you were in town and we were able to make this work. I mean, so how then.
1: serendipitous <laughs> this is, is that, you know, uh, on last day of vacation, uh, eating at some really great restaurants and then having a, a podcast with you all. And you know, this makes it a complete trip for me.
0: Yeah, I love that that's a good day for you. I'm, I'm glad we're not ruining your vacation by making <laughs> no. you do a little work here. No, 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 no.
1: Actually, this is not work. You know,
0: this is is what I enjoy doing. Yeah. So we're here to talk about your first cookbook, Soul. Um, before we get to the book, we want to talk a little bit about you, though. So you, I think you were born in Chicago, right? Born and grew up in Chicago?
1: That's correct. I grew up in Chicago, south side of Chicago. Uh, when I left, was on the north side of Chicago, which okay. is two different uh, cities uh, in yeah. that same same area. But Chicago, to me, still is the best food city in in, in the country. And that diversity mm-hmm. that you have in Chicago really makes for uh, the great way for chefs to become chefs in yeah. the world
0: yeah it is a great food city mm-hmm. and you would also take these summer road trips when you were a kid to visit family in Arkansas is that right it,
1: it was so crazy my my parents always wanted to go somewhere in the summer and they would save vacation for that time so you know we'll get in the car we'll go down to see my aunt and uncle in Little Rock Arkansas or Hot Springs Arkansas okay so we're always traveling back to the south but if we didn't weren't going to Arkansas you know sometimes we we'll go to St. Louis, which is not a southern city, but, you know, it is really one of the areas where you start to understand barbecue or understand how the Mississippis affect, you know, the Midwest. Right. And they will head over to Memphis and then around the south back up to the Midwest. So we always traveled around the south a great deal.
0: Yeah. And when you were young, living in Chicago, taking these road trips to the south to visit family, food was sort of a part of that, right? For I you? mean, the,
1: the best peaches I still remember was on the side of a road, you know, that my dad just pulled over and and we're standing there and the juice is dripping down your your, your chin and and you're standing making sure it doesn't get on your shoes (laughs) or, or, you know, actually seeing honeycomb, you know, for the first time and things like that, you know, just in a jar and and just biting the honeycomb. I mean, all those food memories of traveling. And we went to places that that had great food. So. Um, my parents weren't afraid to stop at any place, uh, to see him. You know, we saw a sign going down to Memphis, uh, for biscuits, you okay. know, and it was, you know, building up, building up. And we pulled right over and, and, you know, it was a two hour wait and we waited uh-huh. two hours and sat down and had a plate full of some of the best biscuits I ever had, you know, as a kid. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what sweet tea was. Okay. You, you know, sure. found out real quick, <laughs> you <laughs> right. know, uh, and, and it was great. It was great traveling with my parents.
0: Yeah. So you're experiencing all these culinary things while you're traveling, but you're also coming from a family of people who cooked at home too, right? Your parents both cooked, your grandmother cooked.
1: It was so crazy. Every birthday, holiday, Christmas... Uh, was at our house. Yeah. And, and, and during the summer, all of our birthdays were there. And usually it was centered around my birthday, but everyone who, uh, celebrated their birthday at that time, uh, got celebrated also. So, okay. you know, I have uh, a picture inside the book, you know, with me holding a birthday cake and it's right. my birthday and I have this really smug look on my face <laughs> because it's my birthday, but I have all these other names, you know, <laughs> you know, on the cake. Yeah. Um, but then the proud moment also was that was my great grandparents. 61st wedding anniversary so they were on a cake as well so you know I felt that was cool but everyone
0: else needed to get their own cake <laughs> right <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's awesome so you're you're exposed to all these food things and these uh food being a really important part of your life when you were a kid but did you realize maybe that would be a career for you at that time or did that come later I had no
1: clue I yeah. no no I, I was uh going to college for physics okay I, I wanted to work on submarines and I was okay. transferring from University of Illinois Chicago uh, down to Georgia Tech, and I realized once I got ready to enroll in school that I was going to have to commit for two years to be uh, in submarines underwater. You right. know, and that was a little bit of peril for a twenty-one-year-old yeah. person. You know, <laughs> right. I was like, I'm not, you know, in water. And school was, you know, actually, you know, I was in uh, high school. I went to high school two days a week and went to University of Chicago four days a week. So I was pretty bummed out of school after a while for six years. I, you know, I've already been in school and I felt like I was just repeating things over and over again. Uh huh. Um, so I stumbled into a grocery store in in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, they said they needed uh, someone to work the meat counter. Uh, did I know anything about meat? Well, yeah. I mean, we barbecued all the time. I mean, I can break down a chicken. I can break down a half a pig. It didn't matter to me. You know, sure. whatever you needed to do and. From From that moment on, I I was pretty hooked.
0: Yeah. So you went into that job, I think this was at a Kroger, right? At Kroger, yeah. You went into that job just looking for a job. You weren't at that time thinking that was step one to food? No, I had no clue. They just Uh
1: asked, you know, what I asked him what they had open. He said, you want to be a bagger or we need someone to work in the meat department. And I sure as hell didn't want to sit there and bag groceries all day. Right. Uh, um, But being in the meat department was cool. I mean, it's like stuff I grew up as a kid doing. So I, I thought it was a great way or great opportunity
0: to get a job. Yeah. And then from there, you're pretty much a self-taught chef. Is that right?
1: That that, that's correct. You know, I had a uh, great mentors, you know, Uh along the way. Well, there was this restaurant right across the street from the grocery store called the Blue Ribbon Grill, and Eddie was the chef there. And so I would cut meat over there in the morning, and then go work the grill at Blue Ribbon at night, and then would walk home. There was really no bus route there, so it's two and a half miles to that job and two and a half miles home every every day. But it was so enjoyable just to see, you know, the reactions of people. and the food that was being produced. Yeah. And having this, you know, this way about working the grill because I knew where the meat came from because I know how to cut it. I know, you know, back at time we were still using, you know, half cows and things like that and grinding our own meats in the house. So I knew a lot of the, 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 intricate parts of, of, of the off cuts that people didn't want to use, but we use them in the restaurant, you know, and it was great to see and, and, and great way to, to learn how to be at least a grill cook on the fly.
0: Right. And then you start working at a range of different restaurants and also working at Ritz-Carlton. Like you worked at a couple Ritz-Carltons. Yeah, three Three Ritz-Carltons. West Palm Beach, Atlanta, and Bucket. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what was that like then? So we're talking about how you are self-taught, you Mm -hmm. know? So a lot of folks are coming into restaurants like that, I imagine out of culinary school or with some sort of formal training. What was the kitchen like for you in those places? Uh, uh,
1: um, It was great because uh, in Chicago, we went to this steakhouse called Laurie Steakhouse as Mm -hmm. a kid. And the chef comes around with this big, shiny cart and he opens it up and he Yes, you know prime rib in there, and right. lamb chops, chicken, mashed potatoes. I remember this whole cart. You know, <laughs> yeah. mashed potatoes all jew, cream spinach, yeah. uh, a couple of Parker House rolls, and you know, seeing this guy with this, you know, you know, pristine white jacket on, tall hat, these sure. medals around. So my first job in a hotel, you know, seeing something like this, you know, I was like, man, this is like being a kid all, all over again. I do remember my first day. At, at, I was actually at the Four Seasons. Okay. I put my chef hat on, but it was kind of leaning back, and you know, everyone said. Well, we know you never worked in the kitchen, <laughs> you know, before, but it was really about guts and determination yeah. and, and really utilizing the tools that my parents gave me in, in reading. We always read a lot, you know, for every hour of TV we watched, we had to read a, a book. And so I was determined not to fail and determined not to to make a fool of myself. Sure. So, I mean, I worked my 40 hours, but I also worked 40 hours for free. You know, so that I can learn in other areas and other kitchens. And hotels are a great way to do so because you have garmagee, you have pastry. You know, we had a fine dining restaurant. We had banquets. We had employee meals. So we had six other
0: kitchens that I can learn in besides the kitchen I was in by myself. Right. So your first cookbook is Soul, and you opened the book by talking about this concept of sharing, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think as a kid like really made you feel sort of conflicted, right? Uh, well, what you had learned as a kid with what you were seeing in the real world, this concept of sharing and particularly sharing foods and cuisines, it seemed like it impacted you enough that you decided to open your book with it.
1: Well, I talked about sharing in the sense that that you know, as a country that's divided right now, mm-hmm. uh, how much time do we spend eating with each other? You know, how much time do we share, you know, conversation? Do we share meals? Uh, do we share music? You know, do we even make eye contact with people anymore? Do we even share common space? You know, uh, people is fascinating in the busiest restaurants. The tables are one inch apart. You can actually hear the other person's conversation, but you feel conflicted because you're, you know, only, you only want to be confined to your own space. And so sharing is really a part of soul is because I'm saying that in order for us to really be great humanitarians, we have to at least share, you know, the things that we want to express to the world. And not saying you have to give it away for free, but you
0: have to put a price on it that people can actually absorb. Yeah. And that's really what you're doing with this book, right, is sharing the food of your life, the food of your ancestors, the food that you have created, mm-hmm. um, based on all of these techniques and ingredients that you've learned. You write in the book that food, sort of on the same note, mm-hmm. that food can bring people together if we choose to use it that way. And that it starts by honoring our culinary heritage. And it seems to me like you were particularly impacted by Jacques Pepin as one of a number of people who you look to in terms of techniques Mm -hmm. as you were learning how to become a chef, and you sort of call him out in that quote and say, like, he really does with his culinary heritage, and then the next step is acknowledging one another's. Is that sort of the goal of this cookbook for you, is sort of sharing that culinary heritage of yours with the world?
1: It so has a a lot of cookbooks, I mean, a lot of meaning in a lot of stages. Okay. Uh, You know, the part of sharing is is to open people's hearts and minds to differences, you know, and celebrate each other's differences. So Jacques Pepin, you know, he's French trained. Right. You know, he makes some of the best chicken, best duck confit in the world. You look at collard greens and collard greens, if you cook it with ham hock, you let it cool down, that fat layer goes across the top. So the fat is preserving the greens down below. Mm -hmm. You know, he's preserving duck and duck fat. So the techniques are absolutely the same. Sure. So sharing, you know, each other's, you know, ideas on food makes us more common than we are different if you just get down to the basic technique. And then the long-term of understanding is that French cuisine is celebrated. You know, Korean cuisine right now is celebrated. Uh You know, if you look at you know Central America, you know, or South American foods, you know, you can't go into any community and not see tacos everywhere. Right. Whether an American version of a taco, you know, <laughs> yeah. or authentic version uh-huh. of, of a taco. Do you see that in soul food? Not too much. You don't see. You, you starting to see it in southern food, but soul food, you know, has some differences than than southern food as as a whole. So what I'm saying is is that for the long term view of soul is to say that the economic value of a people is judged by their cuisine. Then we have to look at soul as part
0: of the way to fix the economic differences in the country. How'd you land on the title Soul? When I was thinking about this title, I can think of so many ways that soul as a singular word could be interpreted, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there's the play on soul food, there's Mm -hmm. your own individual soul, Mm -hmm. there's um, a component of maybe religion or faith, which you touch on a little bit in the the book and and say food is sort of a religion of its own. So it feels like a very loaded title for just a singular word. How did you decide that that was the title, and did it come to you naturally or easily?
1: Well, you, you covered a lot of the aspects of it, okay. But I really wanted to say that soul, especially in soul food, that people think that it's one thing, and it's not. Right. Soul food, as you know, as, as African Americans have migrated throughout the country, has changed along you know the route. If you look at you know, like in my household, my mom's family came from the Carolinas through Alabama up to Ohio. And then to Chicago. My dad's family came through Louisiana. Mm -hmm. The biggest arguments they had was about rice. Uh My mom would put butter in her rice. You know, in the water to cook it. My right. dad would never do that. Uh-huh. You know, so just in my household, something as simple as rice had to be cooked two different ways. There's always two pots of rice on the stove. Okay. So, you know, we look at soul food in, in general. You, you know, people might think it's one way, but it's not. It's really really, uh it's based on techniques but if you go to New York, that's different. You go to Chicago, that's different. And then here on the West Coast, soul food is, is completely different. You know, we have these Latin Asian influences that got brought along along the way. Right. So it's really saying that 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 soul can be interpreted many different ways for the people who consume it or the people who are good preachers of of the gospel of delicious food.
0: I love that. How did you decide to divide the book into the chapters that you did? So the chapters, for folks who haven't had a chance to look at it, are sort of based around particular ingredients. The first chapter is collards. You have a chapter on onions. You have a chapter on stone fruit, Mm -hmm. and so on.
1: Well, you can't start, um, a soul food book without collard greens, you know? I mean, that's, (laughs) you know, you know, so I want to really set the tone in that because, Uh you know, the, the, in each chapter, there's a progression of dishes. So with the collard green chapter, we start with traditional ham hocks and then we go into some crazy things like collard green fried rice and collard green waffles, collard green pesto. And I'm saying is, is that by dividing it by chapter, first it gives person a sense of what, you know, ingredients you can do with these multiple Ingredients that are in there, but it also gives a, a pretense to understanding the migration of, of African Americans throughout this country. Uh-huh. That certain things we picked up along the way, and then also just being a consumer of cookbooks, it, I find them very difficult when you're looking for one ingredient in particular. You can never find it, sure. even though you can go to the index. Right. But, you know, but you really just want to go to that one ingredient and see how many things you can do with this one thing. You know, how many things I can do with peaches, or how many things I can do with berries. And I thought from a consumer of cookbooks I wanted to make it a little bit friendlier for people to actually use the book
0: yeah yeah, I mean, I think as a consumer, I look at a chapter like onions, and mm-hmm. as a home cook, I, right. I might think like, what, what's gonna, what am I gonna find in the chapter like onions? But mm-hmm. then you find things like fried chicken gizzards with mm-hmm. honey mustard and fermented ramps, or short ribs with ramps sautéed and beef drippings. So these really, mm-hmm. I think people might see an onions chapter and think it'd be like
1: They're not even challenging for the for the average consumer. Exactly. Well, I mean, onion but onions are are cornerstones for all cuisines. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I mean, every cuisine has onions and garlic. And and so utilizing onions and all type of onions, you know, there's Cipollini onions, there's Spanish onions, there's boiler onions, which are some of my favorite onions right now. Uh Um, There's shallots. Uh, Coming from the south, there's ramps season. You know, you get them here on the West Coast as well. So, you know, onions are just really a versatile ingredient to have. And to be able to use them in many different ways makes you a much better cook.
0: Yeah. And we talked a little bit about these um Limiting labels that get placed on cuisines, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about like Chinese food, and you talk about this specifically in the book as Chinese food being a very Mm -hmm. broad, um, label and something that, you know, fails to recognize the regionality and Mm -hmm. lots of components there. One dish that really stuck out to me, which you didn't mention from the Collards chapter, Mm -hmm. is the ramen, Mm -hmm. which I think I read was influenced by or inspired by like a Chinese restaurant that you grew up near. Is that right?
1: That is correct. My mom had this love for this, uh, Yakamine, uh, soup. Uh, So it was just noodles, uh, uh, about four or five slices of pork belly, scallions, and a half egg. So it was definitely ramen, you know? But well, my dad, his frugality said that if we order out, we have to heat something up, you know, to go along with it. So sure. nine times out of 10, if she got that, well, dad probably made collard greens two days. So they already had this in their mind of a planned meal, how to do it. So, you know, you have a bowl of this, this noodle soup and you put collard greens on top of it. I mean, it's collard green ramen. And it's, right. it's so funny to me. And I'm serious laughing about it because it was commonplace for me. I mean, we ate this every other, Every other week and, uh, the a ver- lot of variations were inside of it. I liked, uh, soy sauce in mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad liked mustard in, in his whole grain mustard in okay. his, uh, my mom would chop jalapenos and put it on hers. Sure. So it was such a versatile dish for us, but it was so nourishing and, and, and so delicious that it was just commonplace for us to eat.
0: Yeah. Now, you put these um, little touches throughout the book, too, that I thought were really unique and really complemented a lot of the recipes, so things like beverage pairings, but also menus, sample menus, and then my favorite thing is you have some recommended music throughout Mm -hmm. the book. I think I read you're a DJ, too.
1: Yeah, I've been a DJ for all all my life. I mean, music was an equal
0: part of of the experience of eating at our home. Okay. So, did you know you would put music in the book when you started working
1: on it? I did, because I wanted to give... People a complete experience. Uh-huh. I mean, you never want to walk into a silent restaurant with no ambiance, right? You know, so there's no if you have a cookbook with no playlist, then I feel like I'm giving people an incomplete experience. Also, I want to use the the rhythm of the music for it to help people cook, right? You know that you know you don't chop you know in unsecopated rhythm. You know, it's boom, 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 boom. You know, boom then stop and then do it. You never will ever get anything accomplished. So by uh, providing, uh, you know, the readers with a playlist, you know, while they're reading the book or utilizing the book, they actually develop a rhythm
0: for cooking. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Todd Richards, author of Soul, A Chef's Culinary Evolution in 150 Recipes.
2: After years of getting ripped off by big wireless providers, there's finally a better option. Mint Mobile is the affordable premium wireless service that you buy online, starting at just 15 bucks a month. By cutting out retail stores, Mint Mobile got rid of the crazy overhead costs so that you could score some sweet savings every month. To get your new wireless phone plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash save. That's mintmobile.com slash save.
0: We are just a couple weeks away from the 50th episode of Salt and Spine. I am so excited, and I have just loved over the past year sitting down to tell you the stories behind cookbooks by talking with dozens of your and my favorite cookbook authors. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Alison Roman and today's guest, Todd Richards, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we're publishing exclusive recipes and author excerpts, holding cookbooks, book giveaways and so much more. In fact, this podcast is only possible because of our great community of listeners. So to celebrate our 50th episode, we're running a special promotion. If you become a backer of Salt and Spine this month, you'll be entered into a contest to win one of several cookbooks from our recent guests. Now that's in addition to lots of other great perks you'll get, like Salt and Spine bookmarks, t-shirts, exclusive content, and more. You can join the Salt and Spine community and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content – starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt & Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash salt, a-n-d, spine. And now, back to our conversation with Todd Richards, author of Soul, A Chef's Culinary Evolution in 150 Recipes. What lessons did you learn when you were putting this cookbook together?
1: You know, the, the, the best lesson I learned, uh, was about my family. That's There's right. a lot of things that I wanted to make sure that I got factually correct that I didn't actually have all correct. It was, so that was so much fun. Um, yeah. And the book actually has brought my family closer together. Okay. Uh, just understanding the stories. There's things like I didn't know that my great, great grandfather was actually a butcher. Okay. I never knew. I thought I was the only butcher in our family. And my aunt told me when I went there, they said, no, you know, your great grandfather was a butcher in Chicago stockyards. That's how we got to, to Chicago. Um, I saw my aunt Mary Ellen, who, who's 90, she she turns 90 or 91 this year, who still makes seven cakes a week. Wow. Uh, you know, still drinks yeah. a, a shot of uh, whiskey and Coke, you know, uh-huh. every other night. So that was the great part of, of, of that. Uh, From a publishing book standpoint, I broke all the rules. And and that's why I think the book is successful. So if anyone asks my advice, follow your instincts and, and really think about it from the customer you're trying to reach and break all the rules.
0: Can you say what you mean by broke all the rules? Like, what? Give me some examples of well, what you did Well,
1: you know, there. in in the aspects of what they were expecting was that I had a co-writer that would sit there and record my conversation, and they would sit there and take the time to write out everything, and that didn't happen. Uh, my family did a lot of sacrificing for me. We ate dinner around nine o'clock. Uh, they went to bed, and I stayed up between eleven and four and wrote the book basically from cover to cover, okay. and then you know presented it to the editor, and the editor was really great in the way that she did not take my words and rearrange them. She took them and put them in a proper context in which they they were to be. Um, and, and just understanding that this book is the first one, you know, that Oxmoor House ever did of, of this nature. And they had, you know, some trepidations about it. But I told them, no, just listen and follow the instinct, um, that I have here in order to make a successful book because I read them all. Yeah. I, you know, I read hundreds of cookbooks and. Those things I'm saying by breaking the rules is that present your case, understand what you're going for, and, you know, make an untraditional, traditional cookbook. Just like we were talking about previously about the chapters. Everyone's book is one way. Right. This book is by ingredients, you know, so to make it easier for the consumer so that they can really get down and in deep into the message that you're trying to display. Yeah. Can you
0: say what some of the hesitations the publisher
1: had? Well, well, I I just think it was just new. It was new for everyone. You know, I'm a new writer. You know, they're doing this new book uh, on subject matter that no one really has, you know, approached in, in this kind of way who, who is not writing a, a stereotypical soul food book, you know, by a black chef and a black author that is saying that soul food is not one way in which everyone thinks that it is one way. Right. And, and so, you know, just that conversation alone opened up their eyes to a better and better audience. And they became more educated about the things that I was saying and developed more sensitivities, you know, to the world, you know, in whole, saying that we can't really keep approaching things in this singular manner anymore.
0: Yeah. And statistically, we don't see a lot of cookbooks, unfortunately, from black male authors. That, that that is that is absolutely correct. What was that a thing in your mind when you were producing this book? Well, the representation it, aspect.
1: You know, uh, fortunately and unfortunately, being black is always on my mind. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, and and so I really wanted to say that. There is a progression, you know, of cuisine and that from an economic standpoint that we can no longer put value just in the face of the person that we have to put value into the technique. That collard greens take three days to taste great. A steak you put salt and pepper on it, sear it, you know, on both sides for twenty minutes, and it's ready. Right. Which one took more? You know, which one took more labor to actually produce? Which one, you know, sits on the shelf or is part of inventory for a longer period of time? Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, why is it that collard greens can only be three dollars and fifty cents when it actually takes three days for it to taste good?
0: Yeah. What other cookbooks have been important to you in your life? Either books that have, I know you say you Mm -hmm. read all of them, you read a lot of them, either that have been important to you as you were becoming a chef and Mm -hmm. learning the technique, or that you turned to as you were producing your first cookbook as sort of Guidance.
1: That's a, that's a great question. Um, the one I revisit the most, uh, Charlie Charter's cookbooks, you know, being from yeah, Chicago, right. you know, great, great influence. And the Lewis cookbook, mm-hmm. naturally. Yes. Uh, then the French Laundry was okay. another great inspiration, you know, growing up in, in the culinary world. And then it, it shifted to, uh, more books about pure technique. You know, the Elbulet book was yeah. one, the Linea cookbook was, it was high. But then I want to get really into culture. So I really did a lot of research on these old. Church cookbooks. Yeah. Like my grandmother, you know, have the, you know, that's in that plastic binder with the, that woven plastic spiral. Right. And really got down into understanding, you know, where they were coming from in these simple ingredients that really taste, you know, really well, which forced me to then go back and revisit Edna Lewis cookbook. Yeah. And there's a lot that I, you know, that I, that I read all the time. You know, Stephen Satterfield book is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, my great friend Carla Hall's, her, her mm-hmm. book is, is fantastic. You know, uh, Brian Terry, here, here uh-huh. on the West Coast and what he's done for vegetarian and, 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 and that. as So I, mean, I can go down you know, yeah. a, a, a list of, of cookbooks that really forced me to think about food in that general direction.
0: Yeah. You mentioned the church cookbooks, um, mm. which I was going to ask you what role cookbooks played when you were growing up as a kid. We've talked about your, your family cooking often, and you also mentioned in the book your grandmother and that you would watch cooking shows with her. Oh, man. How often was... <laughs> Every Saturday. Uh, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, the lineup of Yang Can Cook, uh, uh-huh. to
0: Jacques Pepin, right. uh,
1: to Galloping Gourmet, uh, uh-huh. Justin Wilson, would, you know, the man had more wine between him and the Galloping <laughs> Gourmet. You know, I thought, yeah. you know, cooks and, and chefs were a bunch of drunks, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, right. but we watched them, you know, every single weekend. And I saw the influence on my grandmother and how she cooked, who used to buy, you know, big broad collard greens and, you know, put them on a the pot, you know, on the stove, cook them all day, who in the summertime, bought smaller greens uh-huh. uh, and incorporated things like kale and would just chop them and sauté them with a little bit of bacon, a lot of onions, a lot of fresh ingredients, uh, great vinegar. She used to buy, you know, really cheap vinegar before and started buying, you know, really expensive vinegar to put on there. She yeah. She bought a steamer, so she was steaming vegetables and then caramelizing them, like the Brussels sprouts she made as a kid. Kids are not supposed to like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> right, <you know>? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, her Brussels sprouts were, were, were fantastic. She steamed uh-huh. them first, you know, chopped shallots. Like, I mean, you know, thinking about shallots as a seven year old, but that's what she used, you know? Yeah. And that influenced, you know, the way that she cooked. I didn't know what fried catfish was. Uh, and so I went next door to our next door neighbor. My grandmother actually broiled catfish. She didn't really okay. fry
0: it. Yeah. And you saw her making all these changes to her cooking, steamers, all of that because of the food TV she was watching. Well,
1: because of food TV, and then also my grandfather passed away okay. at, at, of heart disease, okay. and, and you know, and he was not couldn't have been more than sixty, and she just said, you know, we can't continue to live like this, yeah. you know, that that you know. That no one deserves to have their husband die at 60 with four children and, and 18 or so grandchildren. Yeah. And so she was making that progression in her mind to say that I want to change my cuisine. And then she would utilize all those techniques that, you know, we've watched on, on, on television. And then she also talked about. The freshness of vegetables and started going to farmers markets and wanted to grow things her, herself. It was really just fascinating to see, you know, how she would sit there and squeeze orange juice, you know, yeah. in order to, to,
0: to make orange juice. She wouldn't necessarily buy it as much as she used to. Right. So you went back to these church cookbooks and Mm -hmm. and looked at some of them. What did you learn from going back and looking at those?
1: Well, one thing that really influenced uh, me in writing soul was that I understood that they didn't have a lot of thirds and quarters in their ingredients, you know, everything was in, in even numbers. And I was talking about this earlier today that most of the ingredients are written in even numbers, you know, for so, uh, so that it makes it easier for people to, to utilize. And they also didn't measure things in the typical of half cups and things like that. It was one jar of this. Right. You know, or, or you one know, package, or, or one yeah. <laughs> package of this or uh-huh. one can of that. And it gave me a different perspective of how to approach cooks in my kitchen that don't necessarily have a lot of, you know, culinary background, but who always cooked at home. Yeah. And so you know, that ranch dressing, it was one package of ranch dressing, you know, half a cup of buttermilk, you know, half a cup of mayonnaise. They can understand that in the simplicity of how to make ranch dressing that way. Then I had to really change my approach because there are way more restaurants opening. The labor pool is very, very small. And, and so it's really gave me great insight how to, to reach young chefs.
0: Yeah. Well, we always end with a little game. So okay. I thought we'd play a little game since you, I, I love the way you categorize the book into these chapters around ingredients. Okay. So we've got these cards next to you and I'm going to give you an ingredient chapter. So okay. I might say collard greens, for instance. Um, and you'll draw any number of those cards you want there. You can see there's some more vegetables, there's some proteins, some flavors. And tell me what dish you might make using that chapter ingredient and whatever else you've got in your little basket of ingredients here. Okay. Um all right so let's start with your lamb chapter. Oh lamb oh that's so fascinating. That's one of my favorite chapters. <laughs> yeah, me too. I love that. And your lamb meatballs look yep. so good. Yes. So l- draw any number of cards you want there right. and we'll see if you can um present us with a an excellent sounding dish.
1: All right. Well, that's a great one. Uh asparagus. Okay. Carrots and vanilla. Oh okay. So that's a little bit challenging vanilla and asparagus together. Yeah. But I think we can we can do that. Uh if I was to have vanilla I would probably take lamb's milk or sheep's milk and make a panna cotta with it, a savory panna cotta. Okay. Uh to go with that to really help tame down the gaminess of of lamb.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh the asparagus, uh, if it's big broad asparagus, I would cut the back ends off and probably cook them and puree them. Uh, even make them into a ravioli or something like that. And definitely with the lamb, I would, uh, grill the lamb with the asparagus. If it's a chop or leg of lamb steak, leg of lamb steak is probably one of the most underutilized, uh, pieces of meat of lamb. They okay. think you can only roast a whole leg of lamb. Right. But if you have your butcher cut it and you just grill it like a top sirloin, sure. it is one of the most delicious pieces of, of, of lamb there really? is. Okay. And carrots. I mean, carrots are so versatile. One of my yeah. favorite. I mean, so I wouldn't roast them and I have a secret ingredient card that I can use. I would probably get a little bit of cardamom because cardamom goes well with uh, vanilla as yeah. well in that same kind. Yeah. And I think I use coffee rub a lot, you know, in that lamb chapter. So yeah. if we had the coffee rub and everything like that the coffee rub will work well with vanilla carrots and cardamom and it also will help tame down that asparagus
0: yeah as well that sounds really good yeah um how about we move on to the roots chapter
1: okay let's see what we have here
0: we have sweet potatoes oh that's
1: great uh, ginger. Oh, this is, this one's oh, pretty, pretty easy. Yeah. Let me get a protein. Oh, and tempeh. Oh, wow. Um, all right. Well, still, that's not, that's not, that's not, uh, yeah. there's two different types of sweet potatoes I would right. definitely want to use. Uh, Japanese sweet potatoes, which are my favorite. Okay. Uh, just boil them with a little bit of salt, uh, till they're medium firm. Let them cool to room temperature. Slice them and just sear them in a pan, caramelize them. They're the best snack. Uh, ginger. I mean, I, I would shave that ginger really thin. And then fry it and make it crispy okay. uh, on, on top. As uh, far as the root, that vegetable that would go, did we pick one? No, any uh, root you want. Well, that's fascinating. That's I love carrots you. again, but uh-huh, yeah. you know, actually, I would go to either a turnip. Okay. Or like a white turnip and just boil it lightly in a lot of salt water to really have some good bitterness and everything. And it really goes well with tempeh too, you know, because yeah. if you caramelize the tempeh just a little bit, you get all those nutty qualities
0: to go with it. Okay. And this is all just sort of piled on each yeah, other? Yeah.
1: I would put it on. You know, I would actually do it. um I would probably ma- even make something like a good... Fried rice to go along with it, okay. and if I was at a dinner party, I would put the rice in the middle and have all these ingredients around it, so people could kind of pull in and make their own kind of fried rice dish from there. Mm, yeah, I
0: like that. Huh? Yeah, I like that dinner party. Yeah. too. All right, let's do one more. Let's okay. do the berries chapter. Oh, berries! So, berries, any berry of your choice, and whatever else we draw here. Uh, this is going to be really tough. <laughs> what do we have? Is,
1: I have mustard, okay. uh, broccoli, and tofu.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, this
1: is definitely going Asian again. I can see that already. And if I was to think about a berry for this, it definitely would be something not utilized a lot, maybe a Cape gooseberry. Okay. Um, because it really has this tartness that can go well with mustard, broccoli, and definitely with tofu. Tofu is very versatile. Yeah. Uh, I would maybe make a mustarda out of the Cape gooseberry and there and put it right over the broccoli and then, um, I might even puree the tofu a little bit and add something to it. Um it probably just lemons us okay you know and a little bit of soy so put that down caramelize the broccoli one thing I, I encourage people with broccoli buy the whole broccoli yeah cut the you know the head off but then peel the uh stem and poach that a little bit longer in salt and water and you sear it and it has this really deep broccoli flavor that that i think is underutilized and if i had to add anything else to it probably a little bit of toasted peanuts okay yeah, yeah.
0: Mm. that sounds really good yeah. all right well thank you so much todd this was so great to have you have you all right
1: thank you for having me
0: and let's head now to omnivore books in san francisco to chat with celia sack in this week's from the vault Hi, Celia. How are you?
2: Hi, Brian. I'm doing well.
0: Great. So we just sat down with Todd Richards to talk mm-hmm. about his cookbook, Soul, and I'm hoping you have some wisdom to share with us. Yeah,
2: he's so great. He we uh, we met him at the International Association of Culinary Professionals Conference. Uh-huh. His book had just won Best American Cookbook right. uh, this year, and uh, my employee and I cornered him immediately <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to get him to come to the shop and give a talk. And I'm so glad you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so great to have was, him I was there. really excited. He was here on vacation and we're like, too bad, right, you're yeah. working. <laughs> um, but his book is so wonderful. And as he said, it's about soul in so many ways. It's not just soul food, but the soul of food and, right. you know, how that can be spread uh, across communities. It's just a, such a beautiful book. And uh, he lives in Atlanta, and it's an homage to um, Southern food. He's He grew up in Chicago, but right. then moved back down there where his family is from. Uh, one half is from Louisiana, and the other half is from Georgia. And he talked a lot about arguments that his parents always had around food, and th- those were the biggest arguments that he ever saw in his house. <laughs> or around food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was around how they do it in Louisiana versus how they do it in Georgia, sure. uh-huh. whether it's grilling fish. Or barbecue sauce, or whatever right. it was, and he just learned from them to, uh, you know, to embrace all of it. Yeah,
0: and we've we've had a couple conversations this year. We also sat down with Carla Hall about African American folks telling the story of soul food and sort mm-hmm. of really. Putting out these beautiful cookbooks that really center the African American experience and food. Uh-huh. What what have you sort of seen along that path in the past few years?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that uh, a lot of these authors are getting away from soul food as fried chicken right. and and. Well, collards is always in there, but uh as sort of unhealthier foods, chitlins and stuff like that. Yeah, sort into, of that stereotype. Yeah, a bit. Into how how soul food can also be healthy and clean, uh-huh. quote unquote. I hate that term. It's so stupid, but, um, versus fried. Right. <laughs> there is exactly, a cleaner yeah. version of that. Sure. Um, you know, Bryant Terry really started right. that with his Afro vegan and the foods that Africans were eating when they were brought over to the United States was mostly vegetables right. and mostly vegan. And so a lot of the, the look at soul food is going back to that era. I wish that more African Americans were getting, uh, cookbook deals. Yeah, and that they weren't relegated to just writing about soul food because there's so much more to talk about. Right. Well, thank you so much, Celia. Anytime. Happy to offer my thoughts. And that's our show for today. Thank you
0: so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find a recipe from Todd Richard Soul for his hot chicken-style shrimp. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and Spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks as always to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Cast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend: Greetings, Adventurers is an award-winning comedy, real-play D and D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign
1: i didn't have back problems or kids when we started
0: my favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing DD who don't take anything too seriously
1: right like would a normal
0: group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet we threw so much mayonnaise in there we just started a new campaign so it's a great time to jump in Or you can listen to our first Level 1 all the way to Level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com